This morning, we're going to hear from Joel Mathai. Joel is our South Asian Fellowship Pastor, and uh, he uh, does ministry to the Indian community here in College Station. There's a, a huge international uh, student community, and a lot of that is made up of Indians. And so uh, his job is to minister to them through grace. And uh, he has been in missions for 25 years. He is familiar with cross-cultural ministry. He has traveled extensively, so he knows a lot about missions and ministering to people overseas. And so we're excited to have him speaking for us this morning. So uh, welcome, Joel. Thank you, Marty. Guys, be on? Okay, ready to go. A Jewish father, Moshe, is speaking with his eldest son, Yitzhak. Father, I'm going to marry. Moshe begins to dance with joy and sing, Hava Nagila, tell me, is she a good Jewish girl? What is her name? O'Brien replies the son. She's Catholic. Oi, says the father, but are you happy? I'm happy, says the son. Okay, as long as you are happy, my blessings to you both. Moshe is still counting on his remaining sons, Shimiel and Chutzpah. Shimiel calls on the father the next evening. Father, I too will be married soon. Again, Moshe breaks out and dances and sings God's praises. What is her name, he asks. And uh, the, the son says, Kazalapa Papadopoulos, says the son. <laughs> oh, she's Greek Orthodox. Oi, says Moshe, but are you happy? I am happy, father. Okay, then you too have my blessings, Moshe says. Dejected, Moshe goes to the synagogue to pray. Please, God, let my remaining son, Chutzpah, marry a nice Jewish girl to raise nice Jewish children in your eyes, please. Chutzpah comes to his father excitedly and exclaims, Father, I am to wed in the spring. Her name, what is her name? His father demands immediately. Goldberg, says Chutzpah. Moshe is besides himself with joy. Praise God! Praise the prophets! Turning to Chutzpah, he asks, Is she Dr. Goldberg's daughter, Shelley, from Newark? No, says Chutzpah. Hmm, says Moshe. Is she attorney Goldberg's daughter, Rachel, from Hollywood? No, says Chutzpah. Then tell me, what is her first name, my youngest, most beautiful son? Whoopi. I want to make sure you all are awake. <laughs> We're going to talk about something serious this morning. We're going to talk about missions. And when you talk about missions, you begin with the Great Commission. The Great Commission says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I notice there's no watch or clocks in here, right? In India, they say that uh, when you ask them about, about preaching, they don't really give you a time. And they say, you know, in our culture, the longer you preach, the more spiritual you are. So they don't have any, any clocks on the wall. So I don't know what to do. Uh, there's no clocks. So there is one? Where? Oh! <laughs> it's kind of neon. And you know... It's, these red lights are on there, and you can't really see it. Bad design. Okay. <laughs> All right, when you look at the Great Commission, what comes to your mind when you think of the word nations? See the word nations? What comes to your mind when you look at that? I thought countries. 
Isn't that what nations means? Countries. But do you think that's what Jesus meant when he said, go and make disciples of all nations? You know, the, the Greek word there, it's a phrase called panta ta ethne. And it actually can be translated in three different ways. Okay, it could mean nations, which is people with a ge- geographical boundary. But we know that Jesus didn't mean that because that has changed. Countries divide, countries unite. Look what happened in Germany. Look what happened in Russia. And so obviously, and, and there were very few people in those days. I mean, we got 7 billion people today, you know. So obviously that's not what Jesus meant. He didn't mean countries. So what did he mean by go and make disciples of all nations? Well, another possibility is Gentile or non-Jew. You can actually translate pantata ethne that way in certain contexts. But we know that that's not what he meant either because he loves the Jews. They are the chosen people. Then what did he mean? Well, the third possibility is ethnic people groups. That's what Jesus meant. Go and make disciples of every ethnic people group. That's where you get the word ethne. Now, if you look at just China, and if you look at all the ethnic people groups there, you got the Wu, the Min, the Hakka, the Khan, the Hai, the Hui, the, the Hua, the Miao, the Tai, the Tai, the Shi. You, you make a sound with your mouth. I'll find you a people group in China. <laughs> There's a lot of them. So, Jesus said, make disciples of every ethnic people group. And just in one country, you got so many. So basically, I divide the world into two people groups. Okay? One is the EASY people group. This is where you don't have to have a missionary visa. I mean, they'll give you a missionary visa. Uh, They like you. They invite you to come. Uh, They got McDonald's, uh, Pizza Hut. Uh, They've never killed a missionary. I mean, this is kind of the, this is, this is part of the world. And most of the, mis- most of the workers go where? To this people group. But I don't know about your Bible. My Bible says, go and make disciples of all people groups. A-L-L. And my professor of homiletics and seminary said, all means all, and that's all that all means. All people groups. So, here's what we got. This is where the people are. If you were to draw a map of the world based upon where the people are, this is what the world would look like. Isn't that interesting? Asia is the giant. And then you have Africa. And look at North America. And you know, our whole life revolves around where we live, right? And we think we're the center of the world. God loves us. We're a Christian country. Born of Christian principles. But Jesus came to die for everybody, right? And when God looks at the world, he's looking at where the people are. And so this is kind of an interesting perspective. Now, if you draw a map based upon where the gospel is available, then America just mushrooms into a big, huge, gigantic country because the gospel is available here. Isn't that interesting? This is a map of the world that shows you where the least reached are. And if you look at the, uh, the purple here, that is 0.01% to 1%. And there's North Africa. And of course, you've got the Middle East, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. You've got a, and then the blue is, they've got 0%. There's very few believers there. And that's Afghanistan there. This is Yemen. Um, I believe that's Tunisia. Um, so this is some of the least reached parts of the world. And this is where the need is really great. Now, if you, this is what we call the 1040 window. 
okay? And the 1040 window is 10 degrees to 40 degrees north of the equator, and missiologists have said this is the least reached part of the world. This is where we need missionaries. This is where we need the gospel. And this is the least reached area of the world. And if you look at it, the green is Islam. And we're going to talk about Islam this morning. So that whole area is Muslim. And then you've got the blue, which is India, mostly Hindu. And then you've got China, which is mostly atheism, some Buddhism. And so this is the least reached part of the world, what we call as the 1040 window, okay? So as you're looking at mission agencies and stuff, you're welcome to ask them about the 1040 window. They'll be happy to talk to you about that. And here's the, here are the list of the countries that are in the 1040 window. So you can see the countries that are listed up there in the Middle East, in North Africa, India, China. This is, this is where we need the most help in terms of taking the gospel out to the least reach. Now, who are the least reach? You've got to have a definition. Well, mine is that people who do not have access to a church where the gospel is preached in their own language and culture are least reach people groups. Everybody, you, you're enjoying a wonderful service this morning. Shouldn't every Christian have that, uh, have that right? Shouldn't every Christian have that privilege of worshiping with other believers? Sure they should. And there are many places in the world where they don't have that. There's no believers, or there's very few believers. Okay? So, I hope you're excited about Go Missions, and I hope you'll, you'll uh, go around and get some information. Now, this is kind of interesting. This is where the Christian workers are. If you look at it, most of them are in North America. It's 1 to 1,500, and then you look at Asia, 1 to 1 million. It's kind of lopsided based upon where the need is. Now, another way to look at it is this way, missionaries per million. The Middle East is the least amount. Eurasia, Asia, Africa, Europe, Caribbean, and Latin America, there's plenty. So this is the status of missions today, all right? Another way to look at it is in terms of world religions. You see the Jewish religion, but... 7 million or so. And then you have all of these lists. And the bottom, of course, is mostly China with atheism. But look at Muslim. It's the second largest percentage. You've got the Roman Catholics. You've got Hindus. And then, and then you've got the Buddhists. And then the evangelical and so forth. So just to give you a little perspective of where we are today in missions. Now, Schofield, famous theologian, said knowledge precedes interest. Interest precedes action. Therefore, we are responsible, first of all, to know. So I hope you're interested in what God is doing in the world. You need to be asking questions, especially when you go around and talk to the different agencies. Find out what's happening in different parts of the world. And so it all begins with knowledge. And so I hope that you'll gain a little bit of knowledge this morning. Now, all of you, uh, maybe you all don't. Some of you are very young. But something terrible happened in, in September 9, 2001. You all remember the attack on the Twin Towers by Muslim terrorists? I vividly remember where I was. But this happened um, in 2001. We refer to it as 9-11. And life has never been the same. America, which was once a secure nation, living in peace and prosperity has changed. It has become a pain now to fly. It used to be fun. We used to take our whole family to the airport and say goodbyes. You could go right up to the gate. It was a fun thing to do. But you can't even go in now. And life has completely changed because of the war on terror. 
And it all began on Tuesday morning at 8.45 when those two planes crashed into the Twin Towers. The, worst, the only worst attack than that was Pearl Harbor. People from Argentina to Zimbabwe, over 80 countries died in those plane crashes. Then the other plane crashed in the Pentagon. So who are these people? Why did this happen? What is going on with Islam? What's it all about anyway? These are the questions we're going to try and answer this morning. Well, you all have heard about Osama bin Laden. He was captured. He's uh, quite an interesting character. He's six feet four inches, and you'd think they'd be able to get him, but you know he's pretty tall compared to Arab uh, standards, but it took him over 10 years to get him. So he has 52 siblings. He's 17th of 24 brothers. His estimated worth is $350 million. He has 16 to 18 children, they're not sure, four wives. And he is the one who founded Al-Qaeda. Today, America is at war with Al-Qaeda. It's called the War on Terror. So this guy is a very interesting character. He's a Saudi Arabian. But he was in Afghanistan fighting the Soviets. And Americans were actually helping fight the Soviets. Little did they know that years later, this guy's going to turn back and hurt us. But in fighting the Soviets, and in defeating the Soviets after 10 years of this guerrilla warfare, he realized and he thought that God was on his side. And he says, our next enemy is the U.S. Why? Well, let's think about some of these ideas. Firstly, the U.S. military had a presence in Saudi Arabia where the holy cities are located, Medina and Mecca. These are the holiest places in Islam. And Osama bin Laden didn't like the idea that uh, these Americans were there in his country, armed and ready to go. They were there to defend Saudi Arabia. They're not there anymore, by the way, since 9-11. And then America was after Osama bin Laden. And so he was being humiliated. And there's a thing called saving face and honor. That's the culture in the Middle East, actually throughout the East. It's, it's, it, it's much more important to save your face than to even, you know, uh, speak truth. And so it's a huge cultural value. So he wanted to save his face. So he wanted to uh, fight against America because of that. So the U.S. and West have exported Western culture through movies and TV and videos. And that equates Christianity and, and that destroys Islamic cultures. You know what they think? They think America is a Christian country. And whatever they see on the screen is Christian. That's where they get their impression of Christians. Most of these people in the Middle East. Because America is a Christian country. So Americans are, are immoral. They uh, eat pork. And they booze. They drink liquor. And that's American culture. And they don't want that to infiltrate Islam. And to ruin their culture. And so all of their impression of, of uh, Christianity comes from, from the Western media. And they equate that to Christianity. And then, of course, the issue of Israel versus Palestine. America always sides with Israel. And that is an issue as well. And they don't like that. And, of course, in Islam, there is a goal that one day the whole world will become Muslim. That is their goal. In fact, there's a verse in the Quran that says that. You know, that the whole world will worship Allah, become uh, Muslim. So what are the pillars of Islam, really quick? 
Um, it's built on five major pillars. These are the religious duties. They serve as the foundation for every Muslim. The first one is Shahada. They, this is something they memorize. They repeat it several times. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. When a baby is born, this is the first thing that is whispered in its ear. And when a person is on his deathbed, that's the last thing that they, that they recite. And so every Muslim has memorized this, and this is their main creed. And then the second pillar is prayers. Five times each day they pray facing Mecca. There are Muslim students here at A&M who have their prayer rugs. And uh, if you ever roomed with one, you'll see they'll pull out their rug, they'll face Mecca and say their prayers. Uh, in New York City, cabs will pull over and put their rug on the road and, and pray. You know, just think about it. Five times throughout the world, in fact, prayers is happening 24-7 because of the time zone difference. So prayers are going on all the time by Muslims. And guess what? Their God is not answering their prayers. In fact, the reason they pray five times is it's a duty. They have no hope. They don't know that Allah will answer their prayers. They don't have a personal relationship with Allah. And yet they're very faithful to praying five times a day. I remember being in India and the shops will close. And I'm like, oh man, it's prayer time. And they all head out to the mosque to pray. But here's the question though. We can pray and we know that God answers our prayers, right? God hears our prayers. That's the promise in the word. Well, how many times do we pray? Well, sometimes before a meal, maybe. We don't, we don't pray enough as Christians. We need to be spending more time in prayer and, and watch God's power work. And then the third one is zakat, which is the poor tax. Every Muslim gives 2.5% of his income to the poor. A lot of times through the temple. And this is even how they fund the, some of their activities. Fasting. This happens during the month of Ramadan. Muslims fast from sunrise to sundown. No eating or drinking or sexual relations or anything like that from sunrise to sundown during the month of Ramadan, which got over just uh, some weeks ago. And uh, fasting is something that most Muslims participate in all month. And then the Hajj pilgrimage. This is incredible. Every Muslim, once in his lifetime, needs to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. And in Mecca... By the way, you and I cannot go there, even as tourists, to go visit. They don't allow any non-Muslims over there because we're infidels, and this is a holy place. And so they go there, and it just got over last week. This year, they didn't have as many people because of some um, virus that was there in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. But they, they, last year, they had 3.2 million people from all over the world come for this week-long uh, pilgrimage. And they have all kinds of rituals they do. They run around seven times and they throw stones at the devil and they run up to a hill and all kinds of things. They, one day they shave their heads. All the men shave their heads, a sign of humility, and they go through all this stuff. And this is one of the pillars. Then, of course, there's the jihad, which has been added. And it's considered one of the pillars of Islam now. The word jihad literally means struggle. And so that's how they explain it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's struggling to be a good father. It's, it's struggling to be a good mis Muslim. But if you look at all the verses in the Quran that talk about the jihad, it's war. 
It's fighting for the cause of Allah. You know, and um, uh, let's clear some misconceptions. Islam does not mean peace. The word Islam means submission. Submit, I am sub, I'm a Muslim means submitted to God, literally. That's the meaning of the word. It doesn't mean peace. A peace comes as a, as a result of that. You know, If you're submitted to God, you're going to be peaceful. But the word Islam doesn't mean that. The word Allah is actually the Arabic word for God. So our missionaries use Allah. In fact, <laughs> inshallah means Lord willing. If you ever travel by Pakistani airlines, you know, whenever they come into land, they say we'll be landing at 8.40, 8.41 p.m., inshallah, God willing. And God willing is a biblical phrase. We used to say God willing all the time. See you later, God willing. It's kind of gone out of our culture anymore. We don't, we don't say that anymore. But I had this Muslim carpenter who, uh, you know, I, I used to fear him saying, Inshallah, <laughs> because that meant he would not show up. Because he'd say, I'll come tomorrow, Inshallah. How come he didn't come back? Oh, well, I had other things to do. It wasn't Allah's will. It wasn't God's will. That's one, one way to get out of everything is just say, God willing, you know. All right. Not all Arabs are Muslims. We think every Arab is a Muslim. To tell you the truth, only 20% of Arabs are Muslims. In fact, out of all the Muslims in America, it's um, 23%. We think any time we see someone with, a, with one of those robes and stuff on their head, oh, Muslim. Well, they may not be a Muslim. So we have 23% Muslim, 42% are Roman Catholics. Isn't that interesting? 12% are Protestants, and 23% are Greek Orthodox or Syriac. So don't think that every Arab you see is Muslim. It's actually only 20%. Largest Muslim country in the world is not Arab. It's Indonesia. The second largest country is probably Pakistan. So in almost all Muslim countries, Islam is the state religion. A Muslim is not allowed to leave Islam. In fact, when they get ID cards in these Muslim countries, they have religion in there as well. And if it says Islam, then they, have to carry, they carry that card and if they come to know Christ, there's a big dilemma. Uh, what do I do with my ID card? Do I go in and tell the authorities that I've changed and draw attention to what's going on? Or do I just leave that on and be a believer? So that's an issue that they have to deal with. Not all Muslims support terrorists. You know, we think that all Muslims are terrorists. It's really a minority. It's a fundamental group within Islam. Now let me tell you about things that Christians and Muslims have in common. And these are in the Quran. And Muslims, if they've studied Islam, should know this. They believe that Christ was born of a virgin. Isn't that incredible? Muhammad was not. Actually, if you put Muhammad and Christ side by side within Islam and get all the facts out, Christ is going to emerge as the most unique and miraculous person that ever lived. And that's one of the strategies we use in witnessing to Muslims. So Christ was born of a virgin. Christ led a sinless life. Uh, Christ performed many miracles. Uh, Christ ascended to heaven. And he will return in the future. These are all in Islam, they believe. And uh, Christ is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the Word of God. He is... Um, Judaism and Christianity and their prophets were originally sent by God. Muslims believe that. Originally they were sent by God. 
And the Bible was originally give by, uh, was given by God. Now, here's the, where the differences are. Christ is not the Son of God. They do not, they cannot understand the phrase Son of God. So they accuse Christians of having uh, three gods. You got Papa God, Mama God, and Son God. And so they say, you know, you have God the Father, and then you have Mary, and then you have, uh, you know, the Son, and they don't understand the Trinity. Um, Christ is not God. He's the prophet, Esau. He's a great prophet. Muhammad is the greater prophet. He's the final prophet, because Muhammad came after Christ. But Christ is not God. Christ did not die on the cross. Christ did not rise from the grave. There is no substitutionary atonement in Islam. That's what Muslims believe. Now, salvation is by works. That's why a Muslim does good works, gives to the poor. Uh, because in the end, he's going to be judged by his works. He doesn't know for sure which way Allah is going to judge him. He has no assurance of salvation. But this, he does, so it's a, it's a, it's a religion of works. Uh, Muslims believe you cannot know if you're going to heaven except martyrs in a holy war. And this is why they're able to recruit martyrs. Yesterday there was a, a truck bombing in, in Syria. 30 people ki were killed because this truck was loaded with explosives. And they believe the driver blew up himself with the truck. What gets into these people to blow, up, blow themselves up? Isn't it amazing? Load yourself with ammunition and gunpowder and dynamite all over your body and then blow yourself up. Where do they get this kind of motivation? How can a, a mind be twisted into believing something like that? I just cannot get over it. A little 16-year-old kid, you know, all dressed up, backpack full of explosives, Rides his bicycle into an Israeli check post and blows himself up to kill a couple of Jewish soldiers. Where does this mindset come from? Well, it's been drilled into their minds. This is serving Allah. It is the highest form of service. It's the only guarantee of paradise. And so they're completely brainwashed as children if you go to Palestine in the schools, you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? You'll be shocked. Several of them will say, I want to be a martyr for Allah. Little kids, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, I want to be a martyr for Allah. They drilled it into the minds of the children. And as they're growing up, that's what they grow up to be. This is Islam. They say the Bible has been changed by Jews and Christians. Because, see, the Quran cannot be translated, actually. And so they say, we have the Quran in its original uh, revelation. But the Bible has so many translations. It's been corrupted. It is unreliable. And so they throw it out. And they have this thing called the doctrine of abrogation, which means that, that, that the later revelation replaces the earlier revelation. And so since the Quran came after the Bible, the Quran is the later revelation and not the Bible. Muhammad is God's final prophet. And the Quran is God's final scripture. This is what they believe. Islam is God's final religion. This is what Muslims do not have, a loving God. Allah has 99 names. Not a single one of them is love. 
Muslims lack this. And we have the message that would attract Muslims because we can tell them God does love you. In fact, he loves us like, like no one ever loved. God is uh, a personal God. They have no concept of that. We have the assurance of forgiveness, which they have no idea about. The assurance of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of potential for ministry. We need to trust in God's sovereignty. Muslims around the world may come to Christ realizing there must be a better way. Do you know that uh, 9-11, even though it was a terrible tragedy and has started the war on terror, it has actually awakened a lot of Muslims. People who didn't really study their own religion. All of a sudden they started saying, wow, is this Islam? Is this what I believe? And so that has been a positive thing about it. Because Muslims have gotten um, fed up with Islam. And people are coming to know Christ. These are kind of exciting days. In 1979, when the revolution took place in the country of Iran, when uh, Ronald Reagan was becoming president, Jimmy Carter was leaving, and you know they took hostages from the American embassy. They were there for over a year. There were only 250 Iranian believers. Now, MBB is our code word for Muslim background believer. When you see that in mission literature, that's what they're referring to. So there were only 250, but today there are actually almost 30,000 believers from Iran. Iranians are one of the fastest Muslim groups turning to Christ. There are like three or four churches in Houston of Iranian believers. The largest church of Iranian believers is in California. And they told me what they do is they have their cell phones and they sit next to the speakers when the preacher is preaching and they turn their cell phones on so that their relatives in Iran can listen to the message. So, we want to make sure that God will call Christians to become missionaries among Muslims. In 1979, there were about a thousand missionaries working with Muslims, but today there are almost 9,000 missionaries. And so we hope we'll have some more. So there is negative potential. There was a backlash of many Christians against Muslims after 9-11. In fact, even today, many Christians hate Muslims. There were 250 incidents of vandalism and attacks recorded against Muslims in the first week after 9-11. In fact, out in Arizona, there was a Sikh. You know who Sikhs are? There's a, there's a few Sikh students at A&M. They wear turbans. They have a turban and they have a beard. They're Sikhs. Sikhism came out of Hinduism. It has no connection with Islam. They're not Muslims. They are Sikhs, S-I-K-H, Sikh. And so this Sikh owned this gas station in Arizona. And right after 9-11, some guys came in a pickup truck and and, and shot him. They thought he was a Muslim. And so this is uh, uh, negative stuff. Then there's a backlash of Muslim martyrs. There's more martyrs being uh, developed and grown in these countries. Al-Qaeda is regrouping and continues to convert people to their, to their values. In fact, 7,000 baby boys in Pakistan were named jihad the year after 9-11. 11,000 baby boys in Pakistan were named Osama. He's a hero in the Muslim world. So, possible reactions. Fear. 
People are afraid of Muslims. They're afraid of Muslim neighbors, even here in America. We don't have to be afraid, do we? As Christians, as believers, who's on our side? Who's on our side? Lord's on our side. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world, Jesus said. We have nothing to fear. But there are people who are afraid. They're afraid of Muslims. They're afraid of Muslims overseas. They're afraid of terrorists. They're afraid of traveling on airplanes. Do you know uh, there are people who will not fly anymore? They're scared to fly. You know, they just don't want to mess with it. And you know what? Statistically, this has been proven that it is safer to fly than to drive. It's proven. It's not even debatable. So, if you're scared uh, uh, to die, you better take your car keys and, I'm not going to drive anymore. Throw away your keys. You know when you do that, who wins? The devil. Who wins? Muslims. Why? Because what is terror? What is terrorism? It's to create terror, to create fear. And so if you're afraid, then they've won. So let us not fear. Besides, who is our enemy? Oh, Islam is not our enemy. Whose job is it to take vengeance? It's God. Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Okay? So let's understand who our enemy is. Ephesians chapter 6. Our enemy is not Islam. But it is... The Bible says, put on the whole armor of God because our enemy is Satan. It's uh, powers of wickedness in high places. It's not flesh and blood. So let's, be, let's remember that. In fact, the Bible says our enemy can be an angel of light. We need to have discernment and keenness. So our individual response should be what? Forgive them. You know that only a believer can do that? A non-Christian cannot do that. What is it? Why is it that as a believer I can forgive my enemies? Because I have what? The Holy Spirit within me. But a non-Christian, if you have never, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, if you've never been born again, you do not have the power to forgive your enemies. You want to get back at them. That's the first response. I'm going to get back at that. I'm going to kill my enemy. But as a believer, we can forgive our enemies because the power comes from God through the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says to love your enemies. I remember one time I was speaking soon after 9-11, and I said, um, oh, it's it's coming later in the slides, but I'll tell you anyway. It said, uh, the Bible says, pray for your enemies. And I said, we need to pray for Osama bin Laden. And a guy in the back got up and said, how can you say that? And he walked out. What was the Apostle Paul before God got a hold of him? Do you remember what Paul did before he got converted? What was he doing? He was looking for Christians. And he was dragging them to kill them. He says, give me the list and I'll go after them. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was a murderer. He was a terrorist. Till God got a hold of him, changed him, made him one of the most powerful 
disciples. And he literally changed the world. And today we're reading his word and about his life in the Bible. And it's changing lives. That's the power of God. You know, God can do that. And that's what our attitude needs to be. Now, if the government wants to go after him, we say, go! Go get him! It's not for me as an individual. But the Bible says the government is the one who's responsible to bring justice. Romans chapter 13. God's given them the authority. So, after 10 years, they finally got Osama bin Laden. And we support the government. How about the church's response? Pantata ethne. Make disciples of all nations. And so here we are back to where we started at the Great Commission. This is our response. We need to go make disciples. And remember the uh, 1040 window. Islam. I hope several of you are going to sign up for the uh, summer project uh, to go to North Africa. You will have a blast. These people are actually very friendly people. You'll find out. And so we need to pray. We need to pray for the salvation of Al-Qaeda leaders. Pray that they get saved so that they can, that they can leave this satanic religion. Pray for the Muslim world. Pray for our missionaries working in the Muslim world. Pray for Muslim background believers and Christian background believers that are left behind the Muslim world. You know when you go into missions and you go into some of these closed countries, you're going to meet missionaries and you might meet some Muslim converts. But do you know what happens if there's persecution? What does the missionary do? He uses his visa card, gets an airplane ticket, and flies home. His mission agency says, get back here, ASAP. He's got a place to go. He can fly back to America. What does the Muslim convert do? Ever thought about that? They don't have anywhere to go. So we often pray for the safety of our missionaries and everything, but let's never remember the believers who are left behind. They're the ones who'd be hunted down. They'll be the ones who'll be persecuted. So when we pray, let's pray for those folks as well. And for our Muslim neighbors, both here and around the world, to trust Christ as their Savior, we need to pray. We need to pray every day for God to work in the least reached part of the world. For God to raise up many local and cross-cultural evangelists to Muslims. You all know there's a mosque in town? There's a Muslim mosque in town on Cherry Street. That's every Friday. You can see hordes of people going there to do their Friday prayers. There's a lot of Muslim students here on campus. We need to make the most of our opportunities. We need to uh, befriend these students. See, these students are very, very uh, jittery. Because they know on the average, most Americans hate Muslims. We need to befriend them. We need to assure them. We need to tell them, hey, we know not everybody's a terrorist, you know. It's just a minority. We have them in America. We have the white supremacists in America. We have the KKK, people like Timothy McVeigh. They're a minority. They don't represent the country. And so we can assure these Muslim friends. In fact, have them over for tea. Tea, not coffee. Actually, coffee's okay too, but they like tea. Have them over for tea. Invite them over to your dorm room or your apartment. They will love it. When you make a friend with the Muslim, you know they're a friend for life. They're very hospital people. I have never been to a Muslim home yet where they've not offered me food and something to drink. You know, 
it's a, it's a hospitality-driven culture. So, and you will enjoy that, you know. And they'll have you over several times. And um, you can get to know them. Let them see what a Christian is like, you know. And look for bridges to talk to them about Christ because the Quran itself honors Christ as a prophet. Share Christ with them. Watch the Jesus film together. And if you want a copy of the film, just contact the church office. We have several copies there. And you can watch it in Arabic with them, with English subtitles. There's, or, um, um, it's available in several languages. And give them a copy of the Gospel of Luke. Let them read the Bible for themselves. And uh, there's power in the Word of God. You know. Give them a copy of the Bible. It'll be best if you can find it in Arabic if that's what their language is. Or Urdu or whatever their language is. Find out what they're comfortable with. It might be English, but it's good to give them the scriptures in their, in their own mother tongue. Islam is the most studied religion and Muslims are the least evangelized. Let me give you some, some resources. If you want to learn more about Islam or if you have questions about Islam, go to this website, answering-islam.org. It's a very good website, has lots of stuff on there. Truth for Muslims is another website. I haven't gone there for a while. And then there's a tract called For My Muslim Friend friend from the American Tract Society. You can get a hold of that tract to give out. It's very good, actually. In fact, I have a copy right here. And basically what it says is, who is the most unique and miraculous person who ever lived? And it talks about Isa, the prophet. And it talks about how the Quran says these things about him. And it really opens the eyes of a Muslim as to who is Jesus. And if they want to investigate, they'll find out that he's actually greater than Muhammad, and they might become his follower. Um, 30 Day Muslim Prayer Focus is a booklet that comes out every year. Uh, go on the summer project. Nothing like going firsthand. You will really, really enjoy it. So sign up for that. I hope that was helpful, and um, you're welcome to email me or want to talk to me if you want to talk about missions or anything like that. I've, I've done a lot of cross-cultural stuff. I'm happy to meet with you. My uh, email's on the church's website, Joel Mathai, and I'll be happy to touch base with you. Before we finish, we know the end of the story. And guess what? We're on the winning side. I read the book of Revelation, and we're on the winning side. And there's going to be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation worshiping God. Remember the Great Commission? Every ethnic people group? Well, they're going to be there. We're going to be on the winning side. So as we close, let's read this all together, shall we? This is from Revelation chapter 5. Everybody together? And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. They're all going to be there because Jesus shed his blood for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to focus for a few moments on your desire for the nations. I thank you for each one of the young people that is in this auditorium today. Lord, speak to them. Through the Holy Spirit, draw them into the mission field, Father. What a way to give your life for something that is eternally significant. Whether you're an engineer, a teacher, whatever the educational major is, Lord, we know you can use every one of them overseas in missions. 
I pray that you will give them guidance as they go to the GO Missions Conference and visit with mission agencies. Give them direction. Give them, uh, lead them, Lord, we pray. And we look forward to what you're going to do through the Grace College ministry. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We know we're on the winning side, and we long to be with you in heaven, worshiping with the throngs of people from all over the world. What a day of rejoicing that will be. In Jesus' name, amen.